This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Social media has trained our brains to do something that we need to stop doing. Social media has trained our brains to read headlines and believe we know what's going on in a story. Let me give you an example. Here's a headline. Super teenager lifts car high into the air. What does that paint a picture of in your mind? Super teenager lifts car high into air. Wow. Do you hear the thing about the super teenager? The really strong one that can lift a car up over their head into the air? But if you had clicked on that headline, you would see that the super teenager had gotten their crane license. And they were lifting a car high into the air using a crane. Had nothing to do with what they were able to do on their own. No, they, they were using a crane. They got their crane license. That's what I'm talking about. So that's why when we hear large overtime payments for public health officials, we need to look at how these are created. Because immediately you say, wait a minute, why are they getting all that money? What's going on here? Couldn't that have been used somewhere else? And that's the reaction that, sure, you can't help but have, but let's dig into this a little bit more and find out more about it from a Middlesex London standpoint. Joining us right now, we have Ward 5 Councillor and the Chair of the Middlesex London Board of Health, Maureen Cassidy. Councillor Cassidy, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Mike. Let's kind of start at what we know about overtime payments for Let's start with Dr. Chris Mackey. How much overtime pay over what period of time? What are the numbers in this? Okay, so first of all, uh, Dr. Mackey didn't get paid overtime. So he didn't get it like a um, time and a half or double time or anything like that. He got straight time uh, for extra hours that were directly related to work on the pandemic. And this was a program that the provincial government set up. The provincial government set it up in recognition of the sacrifice, the extreme sacrifice that frontline healthcare workers have been and continue to make every day uh, in responding to the, the pandemic. Uh, so Dr. Mackey, uh, or the, prov- the province asked us to track all overtime hours, all extra hours that all employees, unionized and non-unionized, have put in in direct response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And Dr. Mackey's extra hours were 611 for COVID. So I should say that Dr. Mackey doesn't work regular hours. He doesn't work nine to five. He regularly works probably double what most people would consider a normal work day. And he doesn't get extra compensation uh, for that. So this uh, is is extraordinary situation that's been recognized by the province and a way of recognizing the, the, the sacrifices that these frontline healthcare workers have been making and that they continue to make every day because we're not at the end and we're not even near the end of this. Okay, then if, if that is the, the way that it reads out, I think there is some concern from individuals that maybe we can address. If you think about the show Arrested Development, 
Henry Winkler played a lawyer, Barry Zuckercorn, and he was great at if he answered a phone, he would bill for hours. He would bill and he would bill. If he showed up somewhere, he would bill. And he costs the uh, the family a whole lot of money on Arrested Development. So what constitutes being able to bill for hours? So it's a, it's a, it's a means of tracking uh, the work that uh, Dr. Mackey put in beyond a regular workday uh, directly related to COVID-19. So I don't have specifics of the kind of tasks that he would have been reporting, but he regularly has phone calls, conversations, meetings, uh, well into the night with uh, officials from the Ministry of Health, with officials from London Health Science Centre, with long-term care um, uh, homes here in London, city staff, et cetera, et cetera. And then with his team as well, they're constantly coordinating efforts to respond to the pandemic. We're talking with Maureen Cassidy, who is the chair of the Middlesex London Board of Health, going over additional hour payments that have been made. And let's talk about the fact that this is not just Middlesex London. We know that there have been additional monies given to, as you say, the province set things up to Southwest Public Health, to Haldeman Norfolk in this area. We know, or at least we've heard, Councillor Cassidy, that there weren't payments made to the Medical Officer of Health in Lambton. Do you know anything about that? I just know from what I read in media reports, and I saw what the the, the setup that they have in Lambton Health, it appears to be uh, vacation time in lieu. So if you consider these 611 hours that were recorded for Dr. Mackey, that represents more than four months of regular, of extra work. Um, so there's no way that Dr. Mackey is going to take four months of vacation at any time soon. And so what generally would happen in a situation like that, if you were giving vacation time in lieu of pay, what happens is if, when that person chooses to move on, leave the organization, that vacation time gets paid out in cash. So at some point, there is a payout. And and so for for Middlesex London, this is a program that's been set up by the province. The province is, is footing the bill. Uh, understandably, this is all taxpayer money, but this would be an extreme hardship on the Middlesex London budget and for the, the municipal funders, the City of London and the County of Middlesex. So the province has set up this fund as part of its overall COVID response, and this uh, overtime and extra pay is coming out of that fund. So it's not coming from the Middlesex London budget. Right. There will be other hands that have gone in the air over the last, say, 12 hours, depending on when people learned about this, or 18 hours, and those hands will be up and they they will say, well, didn't Dr. Mackey's position change in the last year in that he became solely the medical officer of health, no longer the CEO? Did that have an impact on billing? I just want to ask the question. No, it did not. And in fact, what that what that change and that was a temporary change and what that has allowed is allowed Dr. Mackey to uh, focus on the medical officer of health role as opposed to the CEO role. So we had an interim CEO, uh, Dr. Michael Clark, and he was able to focus on the day to day um, operations of the health unit itself, the, the human resources side, the IT side, the, the, all of that back office stuff. So Dr. Mackey was able to put his pretty much his sole focus on medical officer of health, which does include, you know, public health programming that's not related to the to the pandemic. So 
uh, it, uh, it, it didn't make any difference at all in this kind of extra hours stuff. And in fact, he would have had even more overtime that wouldn't have been related to COVID, which is, um, it's difficult for a human being to sustain the kind of hours that not just Dr. Mackey, but all of the employees at the health unit have been putting in for the, for the past 12 months. We, we're a seven day a week organization. Um, that doesn't have an end time, starting at 8.30 every morning with really no end time, depending on what's going on. You know, if there's an outbreak in a long-term care home, uh, staff at the health unit are working as they need to through the night to do what needs to be done to address an outbreak or, or whatever emergency comes up. So this is it's not sustainable for an indefinite period of time. We do know that this kind of workload is going to continue through 2021 until we get a substantial part of our population vaccinated. Maureen Cassidy joining us, chair of the Middlesex London Board of Health. And, Councillor Cassidy, just one more thing, and you bring it up in that Dr. Mackey's not alone in doing this and that there are a number of other people. Are they being compensated in a similar way? So we have unionized staff and non-unionized staff that are all part of this uh, this overtime pay, uh, and we have it tracked by individual. The least amount of overtime hours by one individual was 44 hours, and the highest number was, I think, 716 hours. Uh, so there are... Uh, a lot of um, 700, actually, 700 hours uh, for the highest number. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of people that have put in a lot of extra hours. These are people that have sacrificed time with their family. They haven't gone on vacation. There's, they've taken limited sick time. Uh, retirements have been postponed. People that have retired have come back to work. This has been all hands on deck at this organization, and and it's, uh, like I said, it's not sustainable for uh, uh, the long term. But these people have made enormous sacrifices and they've put the needs of the health of the community ahead of their own needs. Well, Councillor Cassidy, we really appreciate you answering the questions that we have. Anything else you think we need to know about this? Uh, I, I think that, you know, with the vaccine and the rollout that's been going on, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I know people had struggled getting appointments for those 80 years and older uh, because, you know, we're limited in the hours that people can work and we're limited in the, the number of doses of vaccines that we have. Uh, the health unit has added a whole bunch of extra appointment times uh, over the next two weeks so that some of these 80 plus year olds can get in and get their vaccine. That's going to mean, again, additional hours for these public health nurses and other individuals who are putting the shots in the arms of people. So they've, they've, you know, agreed to do more overtime to get people vaccinated because that's what people are really looking for right now. We'll continue to ramp up the vaccination uh, in Middlesex, London to get, to get those shots in the arms of the people that need it as soon as possible. Councillor Cassidy, thanks so much for the time. Please keep safe. Thank you. You too, Mike. That is Ward 5 Councillor Maureen Cassidy, Chair of the Middlesex London Board of Health. So those are the questions that we had to get answers to. Right now, we have an opportunity to talk about something that came up months ago, but certainly has come up again with the verdict in the John Doe case 
yesterday, and I love this. I love that the judge used John Doe. I'm going to try and do it. If someone is involved in a mass killing and they are looking for fame, in this case, this individual John Doe admitted this much, then you don't use their name. You don't give them their fame. You don't. Will that stop someone from doing it in the future? I don't know. I don't think we can have that answer. But in this case, let's keep calling him John Doe. But you know the case I was talking about, where someone got in a vehicle and drove down a street in Toronto, hitting human beings. If that wasn't disgusting enough, then we have the defense for this individual bringing in autism spectrum disorder and making use of that. Joining us right now is a member of the Board of Directors for Autism Candidates, the director himself, Paul Finch. Paul, thanks so much for being with us this afternoon. Hi, thanks for having me. Paul, take us back to when Autism Canada, or even when you as part of Autism Canada, first heard that this would be the defense that was being used, that part of that defense dealt with this individual being on the spectrum. Well, it was gut-wrenching, you know, and it was gut-wrenching for a couple of reasons. I mean, the, you know, first and foremost, and I want to emphasize this, it, it took away attention from what this was, which is, you know, I think you characterized this very well. On one part, uh, it was a twisted uh, attempt at notoriety. And on another part, this was a misogynistic act of violence against women is what it was. It was we know this was targeted towards women. We know that that's the root of it. And it, it unfairly shifted the focus away from where it should be. But on another level, uh, you know, those of us that are diagnosed or even undiagnosed on the autism spectrum, um, you know, there's already a tremendous amount of social difficulty and stigma for a variety of reasons. And, and one of them is the ways in which we relate and read body language and this kind of thing. And so, you know, when, when the defense uses a, a last ditch, uh, I'll say an irresponsible and desperate strategy, uh, that didn't have a hope of success in the courts, but of course did um, do significant damage uh, to people's perception of autism. Uh, we, we don't have the framework for education and understanding of what autism is and what autism spectrum disorder is. It's still an evolving diagnostic classification um, as evidence between the, the significant shift between the DSM-4 and 5. Um, and so, you know, really people, this did quite a bit of damage, and, and the nuances of that did not get filtered uh, through the initial media coverage, despite some good efforts by, by some people. And so uh, for us, to summarize, it was, it was incredibly gut-wrenching uh, to see that defense used. Uh, it was deeply irresponsible, uh, and, and I think from a legal perspective, it didn't have a hope. We're talking with Paul Finch from Autism Canada. And we're talking about that legal defense, which alluded to the idea that because this John Doe was on the spectrum, there may have been difficulty in appreciating what was going on through these actions. And, Paul, you raise it. I mean, autism spectrum disorder is something that we still do not have a handle on. Is is there anything that yesterday's verdict changes in all of this or the fact that this was introduced in the beginning did that do irreparable damage 
Well, I, I just want to highlight something, if, if I can. Um, Please. You know, the, the, you know, we're going to see what the damage is, you know, because we're in a pandemic, and it's really hard to tell what the social damage is. But, uh, you know, I mean, our thoughts go out to the entire autism community, especially kids with autism in schools and social environments where they're under a lot of scrutiny. But, I, you know, this defense, and I, I just want to dig into this a bit, it, it's under Section 16 of the Federal Criminal Code. It's, it's a not criminally responsible defense. And to explain that, it's basically there is a criteria forward uh, that requires that you, you know, not be able to understand right from wrong and uh, not have kind of a reasoning mind to be able to plan out this attack and this kind of things. And the problem is, is that John Doe admitted that he had to plan this out. He admitted that he had... Uh, the reasonable mind for this. So by his own admission, he didn't meet the criteria for this defense. And the, the suggestion that autism would make this more likely or, or would uh, default this person into a state where um, he would meet that criteria is just not true. Like, there's just no factual basis for it. So the problem is, is they relied on, an, on a level of ignorance to advance a, an incredibly flawed legal strategy under basically under a provision in the criminal code that is meant to uh, have violent offenders get the treatment they need not to try and protect somebody who apparently has a lot of legal resources to throw last hope defenses at a trial judge uh, that doesn't doesn't have any merit and so our concern here fundamentally with that is um, is having copycat defense strategies and having this become a thing where the social perception gets created that somehow autism means that you can't tell right from wrong. And that's just not true, right? There are people with autism, I'm sure, that can't tell right from wrong, but it's not because they have autism. And that's really the point we want to get across. Yeah, what a great point that is. It isn't because someone is living with autism. It's, it is other factors in there. That, what a great point to get across. In terms of this at least raising conversations and being able to have conversations about it, is there any merit to that? Is that helpful in any way? I think there's a window uh, of, of interest, which is somewhat helpful. That You know, there's over half a million Canadians living with autism, including myself. And it's been poorly understood because the people like myself with autism – um, have typically not had uh, a voice or a voice for ourselves to be able to describe what it is like living with autism. And so th- th- we haven't really had the, the, the ability to do this. And so the, the public knowledge of it is fairly low. The other problem is, is that autism is really the, the way we treat it from both an education curriculum standpoint and also from um, a health standpoint is completely fractured province to province. And, you know, one of the things we're looking to address at Autism Canada is is trying to create momentum to address, have some kind of standard of that on a national level. And I think, you know, that really the, the start of this is is a conversation, it's education. When, when you have over half a million Canadians on the autism spectrum disorder, there needs to be a, a national conversation about education so that people understand what autism is and you know, and, and I think that'll remove the impetus for, you know, an opportunistic defense attorney to make a ridiculous argument like this. Paul Finch with us, with Autism Canada. Paul, is there anywhere in this country where you look and say, hey, if we're going to learn something, that province is doing things the right way. If we're going to create 
a national strategy or or national information or a national way to diagnose. That's where we need to go. No, there isn't. Um, there's pros and cons across different provincial jurisdictions. And um, as you're probably very familiar with, um, you know, <laughs> coordination between provincial jurisdictions is limited at best. No doubt. I mean, the pandemic, I think, has taught that when, when we look and, and we are kind of 13 different countries with somebody overseeing the lot is, is kind of what it feels like. In terms of, of diagnosis and, and what we should be focused on, is there anything that you would point to that may be helpful for families, for children at younger ages, anything like that? Absolutely. Well, well what I'd like to say directly is, um, diag- there's different types of autism. And what the big shift that happened between the DSM-4 and the DSM-5, that's basically the diagnostic criteria that gets used by licensed professionals to diagnose autism. The criteria that got changed is all the different types of autism got lumped into the same spectrum disorder. And on one hand, uh, and so we have a lot of critiques of this. One, it's classified as a mental disorder, and a lot of people like myself take issue with that. But aside from that, there, autism manifests in many different ways. And there's, and so th- by lumping everyone on the same spectrum, um, there's a value to that in acknowledging that we do have the same underlying kind of fundamental basis for these conditions. But the way that we interact and, and, and engage with society and our ability to do so is very different. And what that's created uh, is a lot of... Um, debate uh, internally within the autism community, primarily between those that were formally diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome and, and those today um, who are not, uh, or the parents of, of, of children with autism who are, who are lesser functioning. And there's a lot of debate over treatments. There's a lot this kind of stuff. I would say, and fundamentally, what I would say is this. Uh, if you're, and I just want to give some really practical advice to, to people. If, if, if you or you're the parent of the child, either one, if you uh, have trouble with um, textile, with sensory stimulus, uh, with uh, not being able to eat a ton of foods, with uh, hyper-focus, like these kinds of things. These are all things that often go undiagnosed as autistic symptoms. And and I don't mean this lightly. These are fairly, we experience these things on a fairly extreme level. So everyone can say, yeah, I, I, I feel that way a bit too. But I mean this in a, in a quite a very severe way. And so um, I would I would take the time and effort to at least, um, you know, if you don't have the resources to, to look at a formal diagnosis, at least do some research and, and try and see, uh, you know, plugging with the autism community. And, and what, the beauty of this is that there, it's very accessible online, uh, even in a pandemic, uh, our community. And, and so plugging in and trying to see whether or not you believe you have autism or you're the parent of a child with autism. And, and the, the one fundamental thing I, I would want to say to parents of children with autism is believe your kids. When your kids tell you something, believe that they are telling you the truth, because that is uh, the number one barrier we find in, in access to autism programs. And, and a lot of times people, uh, because our experience of reality is so different, but also uh, it's hard for other people to conceptualize it. When children with autism explain that reality uh, to parents, it's often not believed. Uh, and that causes a lot of further harm. It causes uh, to go into treatment programs that are uh, you know, not the best. There, there's a whole other follow-on. So that, 
that's the fundamental message. If, if, if everything else I've said is forgotten, that is the fundamental message I would give today. Well, Paul, this has been incredibly informative, and you just touched on it a little bit right there. But as a final question, what can being diagnosed as living with autism mean for a child, for a family? What does it do? It depends on your needs on the spectrum, but depending on which province you live, which jurisdiction you live in, uh, there are different uh, actual, there's actual financial resources available uh, for different types of supports. And again, depending on where you're at on the spectrum, there's different supports that you need. And I would just do the upfront investigation and research into those programs and supports because there's a lot of controversy over different types of those supports. And so the, the difference of a formal diagnosis, um, if you're an adult living with autism, there's much less there. Uh, and so it may not be worth that your, your time or energy or money, but, um, uh, but it can be quite an emotional revelation for a lot of people. But I would say that if you're, if you've got a very young child, uh, and they're exhibiting autistic behavior, getting that diagnosis opens up a funding stream for you to access the supports you need, uh, to allow basically to hopefully allow uh, your child to function and integrate better with society. But the, but the other side of that is some of the treatments that are currently in use are ones that are very controversial and, and many people would, uh, for very good reason, take issue with. And so be very careful about how you sol- use that funding stream to provide those supports. Can't thank you enough for the time, Paul. Really appreciate you being able to weigh in on yesterday's verdict in the John Doe case and certainly weighing in on on so much more information. Please keep safe and enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you, and thank you very much for having me. That's Paul Finch from Autism Canada. So going from using living with autism as a defense in... A defense trying to say, yeah, but he wasn't able to realize. Ignorant, ignorant defense. And it's great that that did not work out because that just does show, as Paul says, a lack of understanding. That's what we try and do, understand things. And thanks to Paul for that conversation. One month from today, it starts for real. The Toronto Blue Jays and the New York Yankees, Major League Baseball season. Boy, we need extra distractions. Baseball provides some amazing distractions from life. Our next guest is normally at this time of year chock full of vitamin D. He has given sunglasses a workout. He appreciates the value of Humidex. But this time, well, it's a little different like it is for most things. Please welcome to London Live from Sportsnet, Arash Madani. Arash, you're getting your vitamin D through capsules these days? It's not from Florida uh, Sunshine. Mike, 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 you just, you just, you know, you just ruined the last four months of therapy, making me <laughs> remember days in Dunedin and longing for air conditioning in those days. We'll get you back there. We'll get okay. you back there. Let's let's just treat this year. Prom- is that a promise or a threat? Uh, I hope it's a promise. I, I hope it is. 
let's kind of look because we don't want we don't want maybe this year is a little different again because it's it's hopefully a blip we don't want this to be a blip for the blue jays because there are a lot of people looking at this team and there's kind of the murmurs that uh, you know what if if pitching kind of works out maybe they're in the the upper echelon what echelon do you put them in well they're intriguing there's no question mike and since they really began their rebuild what point 2018 is when it started. Um, I, I thought 2022 was going to be the year they were going to emerge, especially when you looked at what was happening elsewhere in the division, where the how the Yankees are built, how Boston's being put together, etc. Now, last year, I think getting into the playoffs, an expanded postseason, you know, lunging to the finish line to get that last spot. Um, that may have changed some expectations for people, but you, you made a great point. You said if they get some pitching, I mean, that's a capital I and a capital F. I think this is going to be a young, dynamic, exciting lineup a couple of vets to really, you know, turbo boost it. I just continue to look at that pitching staff and I say to myself, I. I still have a lot of question marks about how they're going to get uh, 27 outs every night. Well, we have another question mark that has appeared in the report that Nate Pearson has a, a bit of a good, good groin injury. Uh, what do you make of, of that for a guy who already has a bit of an injury resume? Yeah, he does have a little bit of one. I mean, he missed a month last year. Now, somebody looks at his entire injury history and they say, oh, elbow, that's that's concerning. He took a line drive off the elbow. So it's not that it was a structural issue. It was a bone thing. Look, Pearson is, Pearson has the ability, has the makings, has the potential to be the best homegrown pitching prospect that this team has had since Roy Halladay. That, that's the potential this kid has. He's big. He's strong. He's young. He wants it. He throws 100. But those are some great bullet points and check marks. But yeah, he has to stay healthy. So they're calling it a minor groin issue. Um, it happened in his outing on Monday. They're going to be very cautious with it. They're saying to themselves, okay, well, we don't need to rush it. We're in, we're in no hurry. And we want to make sure that he's going to be absolutely right before we get him ramped up. If he's ready for opening day, great. If he's ready for mid-April, fine. If he's ready for the end of April, we'll roll with that. But we cannot have this be a lingering issue. So that's the way the Blue Jays are looking at this. Sportsnet's Arash Madani joining us as we talk some Blue Jays baseball. Arash, if we look at the hockey world and the Maple Leafs, Joe Thornton is a guy who, as a veteran leader, is unmatched. He's somebody that will have players over to his house when he can. Obviously, in a pandemic, you can't, but he's somebody who will liven things up when things feel a little gloomy, when you get on those three-game losing streaks. When we look at the Blue Jays, George Springer, the things that are being said about him, that he's willing to go on bus trips to other spots in spring training that he doesn't even have to go on, and he's always around. What do you make of what he will bring, not just with his bat and his defense, but just with him? So I had a chance to interview Rowdy Tellez the other day. Rowdy's a dude, crazy enough, he's in his seventh big league spring training. Hard to believe. He's only 25. 
And Raddy was saying that Springer was, you know, the other day, workouts were finished. Springer wasn't in the lineup that day. Springer was dressed. He was done for the day. He'd done his workouts. Um, had his street clothes on, bag on, sunglasses on, ready to walk out the door. His workday was finished. And Rowdy stopped to ask him something, and that ended up turning into a 45-minute conversation. Now, George Springer is 31 years old. He's a World Series MVP. He's a first-round pick. He was the most sought-after free agent in all of baseball. He's accomplished everything in this game. And, Mike, what, what Springer told us about a week ago was, he said, I have to come in and earn the respect of this locker room which really, really stunned me because you never hear superstars, megastars say things like that. He's already earned the respect, but for, for Springer, he said, no, no, this is their locker room. I'm coming into it. I have to integrate myself into it. So if you're a young player and that's the way this established megastar is handling himself, conducting himself, welcoming himself to you, that matters. That matters in a team dynamic. That matters every day. Nobody has to walk around in eggshells. He's willing to share information for the betterment of the collective. And that stuff carries significance, and that stuff will help them. Not every superstar is like that. Uh, not every workplace is like that. Everybody wants to take care of their own, not anybody else. You know, sometimes it's, okay, great. I hope you do well, just not too well, because I want to eat too. George Springer doesn't come with that into the team dynamic. Rash Madani of Sportsnet joining us. Rash, as, as a final question, so much of the Blue Jays' story in the last couple of seasons has been Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette and Kevin Biggio. What do you look for to suggest what those guys are going to be in what they do early this season? Well, spoke with Bo's father, Dante, four-time big league all-star, who was uh, who was a hitting coach for the team last year. He's a special assistant in spring training this year. I asked Dante last night, I said, so, how's your son looking? And he said that Bo was not happy with how his personal season ended last year. The show was injured for part of it, uh, did not play well when he returned, and certainly did not play well in the postseason, and that Bichette made a significant, made his defense and his body a significant priority this offseason got into the gym, took extra ground balls, continued to work on his defense. He's hell-bent on being a better shortstop. Guerrero's dropped 42 pounds since showing up to summer training camp last year. That alone will help him significantly at the plate. They're going to make him their first baseman predominantly this season. I know he wants to play third. I think Kevin Biggio will be taking a lot of the uh, starting spots there. But I think it's going to be a better year for Bo, a better year for Vlad, and let's remember, we're talking about kids who are 22 years old. Um, they're just starting to scratch the surface here as, uh, as big leaguers. That's amazing. Well, Arash, ignore whatever snow flurries were falling earlier today. That was a mirage. That, that doesn't happen during spring training. And uh, we'll look for more coverage and more excitement around the Blue Jays as we get closer to opening day in one month. Keep safe. All right, Mike, you too. Thanks for the time, man. Thank you. That's Arash Madani from Sportsnet. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.